Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. As you are seated, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Exodus chapter 20, the Old Testament. We are continuing our study of the Ten Commandments, looking at how to practically love God and love others. Looking at the first section, the first tablet of those commandments are focused on our worship, our adoration, and our, our love for the Lord. If you're using the Bibles there in the chairs, it's on page 52, and we will be looking at this passage in just a few moments. We have surprisingly few details about the story, uh, but we have more than we might expect considering where we find it. And the number is interesting because of the ones that are left out. There's a couple of significant pieces of the story that were not given. One is the actual reason for the conflict that took place. There were two men. One was a Jewish man. The other was part Jew and part Egyptian, and they got into a fight. We don't know what caused the fight. The man who was part Jew had a a Jewish mother were given her name. But we don't know his father's name. We just know that he was an Egyptian. We know that his mom was from the tribe of Dan. And we're giving the basic situation that took place, the the basics of his offense, the shock that took place within the society, the trial that followed, and his ultimate penalty. The son of an Israelite mother and an Egyptian father got into a fight with an Israelite man. Maybe he felt ostracized, maybe his mixed heritage, possibly he had a difficult upbringing. We don't know. His father is not named and appears to have been absent. Possibly his mom took her son and fled from Egypt, and maybe the father was dead. All of this is speculation that possibly having an absent father caused him to somehow lack respect. But something happened a fight broke out between this young man and a a Jewish man, and we aren't given the details of what he said. But we do know, know that he blasphemed the name. What name? The name of the Lord. He took God's name with a curse. Possibly he cursed the other person using God's name. Or maybe he cursed God. We don't know. But what he did in the heat of that moment, in the fit of anger, was his heart spilled out. He expressed contempt for that which was sacred. He disrespected the name of God. And because of that, his mixed heritage brought a level of ambiguity. The Jewish community really didn't know what to do with him. The people were shocked and and uncertain. And so they brought the transgressor to Moses And we find the first of four recorded instances where Moses must seek God's direction. The law is not meant to be exhaustive, but provides principles for life direction. 
And when the verdict of his crime was announced, it was clearly stated that those who committed such a crime, both if they were in the nation of Israel or just part of that nation, whether they were Israelites or part Israelites, if they were under the Israelite community, the consequence would be the same. We find the few details of this story recounted in Leviticus chapter 24, verses 10 through 16. And it's interesting because it's one of the very few narrative passages in Leviticus. Most of Leviticus is giving of the law. And we don't have many details. In fact, even within that chapter, it seems to interrupt the flow. But it's not an interruption. It's an illustration that God is holy and his name is to be honored. It's an illustration that this is to the case, and the consequence for this sin was the penalty of death. Now, that may seem harsh to us. The name Yahweh, the personal name of the Lord, has been repeated in almost every paragraph of the law because his name reveals his nature. And when we come to the third commandment, we're going to see that. It's a familiar commandment. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. We are continuing our study of the Ten Commandments. We began several weeks ago, and and when we did, I mentioned some principles that help us of knowing how to apply the the law in our current dispensation, in, in the age of grace that we are not under the Mosaic law, but there is practical teaching available. And when we look at the commands of the law, we we ask these questions and see, because we can learn, are they based in the unchanging character of God? Are they rooted in the created order? Are they repeated in the New Testament or adjusted in the New Testament? And, And is there no major conflict in this current dispensation? The third commandment is, is inextricably linked to the character of who God is, of his name, and, and that his name reveals his character. It's repeated in the New Testament as we are taught by our Lord how to pray, that when we come to the Father, we say, hallowed, holy be thy name. And that we would see his name as holy. And, and we find this in the third commandment. If you have your Bibles open to Exodus 20, follow with me. I'm going to begin in verse 1 again to bring us into the context because the first four commandments are really telling us that all of us are created to worship God. We are to worship the true God. We're to worship him rightly, which is spiritually, which is the second commandment. To do so reverently, which we find in the third commandment. And regularly, which we will see in the fourth commandment. Follow with me as I begin reading in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Let's look to the Lord. Father, as we look into your word this morning, We pray that we would 
come to you and comprehend your greatness, your goodness, your glory, and the holiness that is revealed in your name. Cause us to live in such a way that our lives will reflect that we carry your name in reverence and holiness. And we pray that if there are those who don't know you, that they would understand that you have sent your Son to be their Savior. And we pray this in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I mentioned, these first four commandments are about worship, that we are to glorify God. We're to worship the true God. We're to worship Him rightly, spiritually, as we considered last week, reverently, as we'll see in this one, and regularly. The first commandment is really the idea that the existence of God must be understood that he is the God of the Bible and it requires our unrivaled devotion. So it's a, it's a command against atheism, agnosticism, polytheism, syncretism, and, and any other type of worship that does not honor the Lord. The second commandment is that our worship must be spiritual. It must be with spiritual purity. It must be in harmony of, of how he has revealed himself. The first commandment is who we are to worship. The second commandment is how we are to worship. What I want us to see in the third commandment this morning is that because God is holy, his name must be handled carefully and reverently. Names mean something. And the third commandment is closely tied with the former two, that although there is no true God besides Jehovah, Yahweh, his, his divine essence cannot be seen or perceived in forms and images. Therefore, the second commandment. But he has revealed his glory of his nature in his name. Therefore, God's name is not to be abused, it's not to be mistreated, mishandled, it's to be treated reverently. This is probably the command where we as fallen humans fail the most and are least aware of it, especially within our culture. So why is it so important? Well, because the Lord identifies himself and really defines himself by his name. There are over 100 references to his name in the Psalms alone. And we find it throughout Scripture. So the first thing I want us to see is that God's name reveals his person and his character. This is the fundamental truth and reason that God's name is not to be treated lightly. To blaspheme his name is to despise his person. And there are multiple categories, and, and I'm, I'm going to give these just kind of for illustration and, for, and so that we can be aware of them, but there are proper names for God, El or Elohim. El is found over 200 times in the Hebrew Bible. Elohim is over 2,500 times in the Old Testament, and, and it emphasizes his glory. It's how we are introduced to God in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, Elohim created the heaven and the earth. Another one is Yahweh, the proper name for God. It's used 1,800 times in Exodus. Jehovah is the most often used name for God. It's used over 6,800 times in the Old Testament. In our English Bible, it's written capital L, then small caps, O-R-D. And that's to distinguish it from the word Adonai, which is capital L, small O-R-D. And so as you read, that's how we find it in our English Bible. The first appearance of, of the word Jehovah 
in Gen- is in Genesis 2-4 where the text speaks of the Lord God. The idea of Jehovah Elohim. And, and we see this being repeated. Now, there are cults that claim that the only right name for God is Jehovah. There are churches that would say that churches like ours that use other names are wrong. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses would say. And yet that is not accurate. And we see that in Scripture, that even in the Hebrew Bible and then in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, that other names are used. But we see these names, the, the word Adonai, the name Adonai, the small letters, in the, is, means ruler or master. In the Greek, it would be kurios, same word. It's the expression that, and it's used in, in the Old Testament in the Septuagint to express both Yahweh and Adonai. These are proper names. There are personal names for God that are given, such as Father, Abba, the, the closeness of that, the, the personal. And when we pray, we, we pray our Father. This is something that we as believers, as Christians, have a, a personal relationship where the Jews wouldn't even think that way. They would think of the, the God being the God, the father of Abraham and Isaac. But we see him as our own personal heavenly father. Jesus the, that name as Savior, he shall save his people from their sins. Or, or the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, and, and all three persons, the Trinitarian aspect of the, the Godhead. God in three persons. And that we can come. He's our, our Comforter in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, when I, when I go away, the, the Comforter will come. The Paraclete, the one who will come and be with you. And we have that. There are names that reflect the nature of God, his, his essence. In Exodus 3.14, as, as Moses is asking, well, who shall I say well, is sent me back into Egypt? And God said, I am. The verb, the verb form to be. It doesn't limit God's nature. It shows the, the characteristic. that, And it's interesting because it can be used in different ways. I am who I am. It's, it's, it's not specific in that it could be I am who I was I was who I will be or any combination of that to show the eternality and the unchangeableness of God and when Jesus was disputing with the Jews in John 8:58 he said before Abraham was I am they knew exactly what he meant that's why they picked up stones to kill him because he was using the name of God, and in their minds, it was wrongly. But it was not wrong because Jesus is God. He is God the Son. But that was the reason they wanted to kill him. The story that we began with in Leviticus, if you misuse, blaspheme, take God's name in vain, they considered that a crime worthy of death. So to see, I am the Holy One. Isaiah 57, 4, thus says the High and Lofty One whose name is Holy. That we understand the, that His name is above all names. He's, he's separate from creation. He's separate from corruption. And we treat His name that way. That God is a jealous God. It speaks of His nature. And we saw this in the second command. But we see in, in Exodus 34, 14, whose name is jealous. 
And, and we mentioned last week that we tend to think of that as a negative trait. And, and for us, it often is because it's really based in envy. We want what somebody else has. But jealousy to protect what is rightfully ours and what is rightfully God's is, is a quality that is admirable. God will protect his glory and God is jealous for his people. And so he cares for us. And that ought to give us comfort and confidence. There's another category of names and those are descriptive names. And, and there are many, many of these. In fact, one of our summer growth classes in the first session was on the names of God. And, and they could only, Pastor TJ could, DJ could only scratch the surface of that. And I heard wonderful things about that class. But there are many of these. El Elyon, the Most High God. Glad and rejoicing in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. El Shaddai, the all-powerful, all-sufficient God. It, it's almighty. I am almighty God. And, and there are many others of the, that begin with L and, and speak of God's qualities. There's Jehovah, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. That in that day, it says the, the Lord will provide. Years ago, I got a mailing and it was for a, a Christian dating service titled the Jehovah Jireh dating service. <laughs> what do they say? The Lord will provide. Another one is Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is peace. And so Gideon built an altar there and called it the Lord is peace. Jehovah Shalom. Savior, that descriptive name. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 25, 11, for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my iniquity, for it is great. Psalm 54, 9, save me, O God, by your name. And Acts 4, 12, there is no salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Well, what name is that? Well, Acts 4, 10 told us, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, our Savior, and there are many, many more names. This, this list is merely to, to kind of give us an idea. It's illustrative that, that God reveals himself. He reveals his person and his character. It's a great study to do. But you know, we, we, we talk about people having a good name. What do we mean? Well, we're speaking of their reputation. Their name is their identification. We, we go into stores and, they, and often they'll give us a pad and they'll say, you know, you're, you're paying for something and you take your finger and sign. And it's like, that doesn't look my, like my singer, signature at all. But what is it? It's a representation that I will pay that bill or that I received the product or that I'm turning down the extra insurance on a rental car. And, and you just scribble it, but it's a representation of who you are. Well, God's name is a self-revelation. It's, it's, he identifies and defines himself. It speaks of his person and character. And, and so we understand that, that, that we are to be testimonies. Speaks of, of Paul in the New Testament, that he is a chosen instrument to carry my name. It speaks of his works. How majestic is your name in all the earth? And it, it speaks of our worship. So because of this, we need to understand, secondly, that God's name must be regarded properly. What does it mean to take the name of the Lord? It, it's, we're, we're 
told what not to do. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What does it mean to take the name of the Lord? Well, it really means to lift it up, to hold it, to carry that name. It isn't just words or speech, but it's how God's name is used. So what is the prohibition of this command? What is it that we're really to be on guard of? Well, the first thing would be do not use God's name without reverence for him. That would be the first thing that we need to understand. Using God's name for profanity would obviously be a violation of this. The frivolous use of God's name is is worse than the four-letter Anglo-Saxon vulgarities that hopefully shock us and offend us because it's blasphemy against the God of heaven, the creator of the universe. God's name is to be treated with respect and holy reverence. It's deserving of adoration. So to use God's name to curse people is a misuse of God's name. God reveals himself as the delivering God, not the damning God. Yes, judgment will come, but he's appointed both the time and the person by whom that judgment will come, that condemnation comes. His word tells us he's a saving God. So Psalm 106, 8, save for his name's sake. So to use God's name as profanity, to use God's name as an exclamation point, an expression of shock, or to show disgust is really to debase his name and violate the third commandment. To show no more thought than a schoolgirl's texts, even if we use the initials, is to take his name in vain. And to assume because we abbreviated that somehow we're clear is really the heart of legalism and moralism. Well, I didn't technically cross that line. But if we're using it flippantly, we're not carrying it reverently. So to use his name as profanity. Secondly, to use it as deceitfully. And that's really the primary application that we would see in this passage, the the application of the idea of taking an oath in the name of God. Deuteronomy 6, verse 13, and Deuteronomy 10, 20 speak of this. And and the Pharisees had developed an entire system of oath-taking so that they could kind of get around using God's name. They they were so careful that, that often they wouldn't even speak God's name. So they would swear oaths by heaven instead of by God. Or by the gold in the temple rather than by the temple itself. And Jesus confronted this attitude in the New Testament. In Matthew 5, 34, he told them that heaven is God's throne. And then in in Matthew 23, verse 16, he said the temple is what sanctifies the gold. And he said, quit playing these games and say, well, it doesn't really count because I didn't swear by God or by heaven. I swore in this area. And he said, yeah, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And we see people do the same thing. Well, I swear on a stack of Bibles. Well, if somebody says that, that to me, I get really nervous. Why are they having to do that? And I have a stack of Bibles, but I don't use that for swearing. <laughs> and I got plenty of them. But our, our words ought to be yes, our, should be yes, our no should be no. If a person now, if a person swears to tell the truth in court, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God, they're under oath and God is watching, they're prohibited from perjuring themselves. 
And when a person says, God is my witness, they better recognize that God is witnessing what they say. Don't call God to witness your falsehood. Because if you invite his witness falsely, you will incur his judgment. Now, most of us probably understand that profanity and dishonesty are are really not the appropriate ways to use God's name. But this, this verse is not simply about the technicalities to avoid, but it's really about loving and cherishing his name and being jealous for his name. You know, the more I studied this, the more convicting it became. Because it's not just that we would use his name without reference. The second area we can violate this is if we use his name without reference to him. That we use God's name, but really we're not thinking about him. We we use God's name in a thoughtless manner. We see an example of this. We, in our scripture reading, it referred to um, Elijah and the praying that it wouldn't rain. And then the, the challenge that took place with the prophets of Baal. Well, when you read that story, you read of these prophets of Baal dancing around the altar and shouting and trying to call down and crying out, oh, Baal, hear us, oh, Baal, hear us, and doing it over and over and over. It was really vain repetition. Vain both in the repetition and the fact that Baal is not a real God. But we can use the Lord's name over and over without really thinking about it. I mean, when we, we pray, Do we allow our minds to just wander? Do we pray without thinking? Do we use phrases without thinking? Because we've said them over and over. And it's easy to fall into those patterns. When we say we pray in Jesus' name, do we understand what that means? It's not a magic phrase that we tack on at the end. It's really a realization that we come into the presence of the Father through the Son. And we're seeking to pray according to His will. And when we say amen, that's not a word to say open your eyes. It's saying, so let it be. Let it be so that we want this to come to pass. Or when we sing praises to God, do we truly reverence him? Do you see how easy this is for us as fallen creatures to to let our minds go elsewhere? For me as a pastor to realize this is convicting. We want to mark God's name by a genuine reverence, a, a holy demeanor and attitude. Or what about careless expressions? You know, within our Christian circles, if we're not careful, we can almost use God's name like packing material. Recently, we, we ordered some, some bookshelves, and when they came, they, they were in boxes with all sorts of pieces. And it's like, oh, no, I have to put these together. And I opened it up, and, and it was packed with styrofoam. And, and that was useful for the shipping and for the care and protection. And, and, but as I opened the boxes, I just tossed that aside. You know, if we're not careful, we can use God's name like packing material. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Thank God. Thank the Lord. Are we really doing that? If we say it, do we do it? I remember years ago, I was pastoring in Maine and I'd preach one day and I was talking with one of our senior saints at the door and, and she said something and I said, well, praise the Lord and, or thank the Lord. I don't remember exactly what she said, but she looked me in the eye and she said, well, I hope you do. And she wasn't being snarky. She was, she was a true New Englander. <laughs> I mean, what you see is what you get. But it, it really grabbed my attention. I said, you know, if I'm going to say that, I better be doing it. I better not just use it as packing material. 
And it's easy for us to do if we're not careful. If we use God's name without giving him proper consideration or regard, we're not actually showing the proper reverence. And that's the warning of this passage. And, and I say this because it's very easy to become desensitized in our culture. You know, another way of, of taking his name without reverence is to use it hypocritically. We call him Lord, but do we obey? You know, are we one thing in church and another thing at home and a different thing at work? If so, we're really, we're carrying the name of Christian in a way that is not honoring him. Don't wear his name in an empty way. One of the statements of baptism, as we had that announcement this morning of a baptismal service, it is a public testimony saying that we are identifying with Jesus Christ and we are being raised to walk in a new way. And the public identification is a reminder for every one of us that that was the promise we made. Are we doing it? Because if we're not, we're taking his name in vain. Sometimes we find substitutes. And I I think we have to be cautious. My concern personally is that I carry God's name in reverence. You know, there are idle euphemisms and minced oaths that are very common in our culture and and even among Christians that, that I wouldn't put them at the same level, but I think we have to be cautious. These minced oaths are words that are used as an expression that are substitutes for the name of God, for the name of Jesus. And we wouldn't actually use his name, but we replace it. I think we need to be very careful. And you say, well, pastor, I think you're being too restrictive and too sensitive. Maybe so. But in a culture that is laboring to desensitize us, I do want to remain sensitive that I don't take God's name lightly. Why? Well, because the third thing that we see is that misuse of God's name brings culpability. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And this is a statement that that God is aware. What does that mean? It means the person who uses God's name thoughtlessly will not go unpunished. To despise God's name is to defile his character. And so what we need to understand is guilt is not based on feelings. It says the Lord will not hold him guiltless. How many people within our culture use God's name frequently and frivolously and don't feel any remorse? That doesn't mean they're not guilty. When people use God's name without reference to him or reverence for him and feel no guilt or shame or remorse, it's not a statement of of their not being guilty. It's really a statement of their desensitization. The fact that people don't feel guilt doesn't remove the guilt. It simply reveals their carelessness and callousness. And being guilty before God isn't based on our feelings. When we violate his word, his law, when we fail to treat his name as holy, we're guilty. I mean, what would happen in our society if people were killed for violating this commandment like that story in Leviticus 24? I mean, Hollywood would be a ghost town. (laughs) And so would a lot of other towns and schools and homes. But why is it that the entertainment industry seems to spew this, this vain use of God's name so readily? It's because they have wicked hearts. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's what the Bible tells us. That man in Leviticus, when he cursed God, that was in his heart. 
the heat of the moment, the pressure of the situation didn't make him do that. It just revealed it. And we need to also understand, not only does guilt, is it not based on feelings, guilt is not motivated by flesh and gratification. This is a, a unique sin. It's interesting because if you, if you think about it, it's a sin with no reward. Other sins have some degree of pleasure. In fact, Hebrews 11.25 speaks of Moses that, that he wanted to identify with the people of God, rather enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. That, that there is a pleasure in most sins. Now, it's short-lived, there are consequences, but, but a person who steals enjoys a, a momentary pleasure of profit. The drunkard may appease the societal peer pressure or, or get a physical buzz or, or a momentary escape from reality. The fornicator has a physical pleasure, but the one who violates the third command, there is no fleshly pleasure, but they invite the divine displeasure. It's a sin of sheer rebellion and defiance before God. It's, it's shaking our face in the face, our fist in the face of God. Puritan pastor Thomas Boston put it this way. Can anyone say that it is a sin of its constitution? We have heard of a covetous, envious, lustful, or passionate constitution, but of a swearing constitution? Never. Is any man born with it? Does the constitution of our bodies incline us to it? In many other sins, the body drags the soul, but here the soul, contrary to all God's commands, makes the body its slave and turns the tongue against the heavens. What a description of this sin. And the realization there is no actual, there's not the pleasure of sin that so many other sins may offer in the moment. So do we understand the evil that invites the judgment of God? But understand also that Jesus Christ took the penalty for this sin upon him when he died on the cross. There is forgiveness. There is redemption. That's why the joy of Acts 4, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. He is our Savior. If you are saved, you carry that name of Christ as a Christian. If you've called on that name, because the Bible tells us whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not just saying a, a phrase. It's not just the articulation of syllables. It's putting our trust in the person and work because he's identified by his name. It tells us of his character, of his goodness, of his holiness. And when we've done that, to say, yes, I've called on him, when we're baptized, we're saying, I want to publicly identify. It's a step of obedience, but it's also that encouragement that I want to publicly say that I have been buried in the likeness of his death and I've been raised to walk in a new way of living. And that as a church family, we encourage one another in that life and so that we would be found faithful understanding this is a serious sin because of the culpability. And so how do we apply this personally? God's name really ought to be evidenced in our lives. Instead of taking God's name flippantly, let us bear his name thoughtfully. His name is good. 
you know, there, there are a lot of people with good names. There are, there are names we say, that, that is a, a person, it identifies their character as a good person, but none is as good as him. His name is great. There are great names, but none as great as his name. And so we should be reminded when we pray that we do it in a thoughtful way, that, that we're praying to the heavenly Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. That we don't take it flippantly, lightly, but thoughtfully. Instead of taking God's name falsely, we must bear his name truthfully. Let our yes be yes, our no be no. Be known for our truthfulness without needing a stack of Bibles. Because he's our Savior, and, and he is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Instead of taking God's name hypocritically, let us live sincerely. Second Timothy 2.19 says, Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. That ought to be the goal for each of us, that because we carry the name Christian, that it's not just some religious category, but that we're identifying as Christ's followers. And since we bear the name of Christ, that we strive to depart from sin, that we don't wear it hypocritically. We don't pretend to be what we don't intend to be. The fourth one, instead of taking God's name blasphemously, we carry it reverently. How do we use his name? In our words, our lips, and with our life because it will elicit a response. If we use it falsely, if we lift it up wrongly, God will not take that lightly. He will not hold us guiltless. Now, thankfully, Christ paid the guilt, but let's be on guard. God chose us in Jesus Christ. He adopted us into his family that we can call him our heavenly father and that we should live to the praise of the glory of his grace because he's accepted us in Christ. Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. That's the testimony of Ephesians 1.6. And then instead of using his name for condemnation, let's declare it for salvation. That we would not use it to condemn people, but that we would share it as he is the delivering God. To frivolously use God's name to curse someone or something would be the last thing that an Israelite would even think of doing. I mean, even a partial Jew received the death penalty for cursing and blaspheming the name. But let us ponder and proclaim that he is a saving God. Psalm 116, verse 4, Then I called upon the name of the Lord, O Lord, I implore you, deliver my soul. And if we understand he's a saving God, then let us go to the world for the sake of his name. To every nation his glory proclaim. Pray that the spirit wise will open darkened eyes, granting new life to display Jesus' fame. And in the very first verse of that song, to bring the Trinity together, the work of the Holy Spirit, the glory of Jesus Christ, I love the words of that song because it, it gives those testimonies. Love the unloved for the sake of his name. Why do we fellowship? For the sake of his name. Let, like Christ, befriend those whose heads hang in shame.
and tell them what Jesus died, God's wrath was satisfied. Urge them to flee to the Lamb who was slain. What a joy to be able to share the gospel. Have you ever had the privilege of sharing the gospel with somebody whose head truly was hanging in shame and to see the joy when they realize the forgiveness that there is in Christ? And to realize that we get to do that so that we can together glorify him. Because at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. They will either bow here and trust him as their Savior, or they will bow in judgment and acknowledge him as the judge. But he is Lord over all. And when we share the gospel, we're seeking to reach people from every tribe, tongue, people, group, and nation that can worship and glorify him. So let's look to the throne for the sake of his name, and that we would come before it in holiness and reverence, that when we pray, it is, Lord, holy, hallowed be your name, because God is holy. His name must be handled carefully, and we must carry it reverently. How are we doing with this command? I said, this is a convicting one, because it's easy to see in our world, but it's also easy to slide around it and realize God's name must be carried with reverence and respect and adoration. Is he your Lord and Savior this morning? Let's look to our Lord.